welcome back to the Postpartum Therapist Podcast. My name is Jasmine and I'm your host. Today I have a special guest, my sister-in-law, Cami, who recently became a registered nurse, but historically is a sonographer. So today we're going to interview her to get the sonography perspective and see if she's experienced anything postpartum. So Cami, could you please introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll get into your um, background from a professional standpoint. Yeah, so um, I am a sonographer and now a registered nurse. Um, I've been working in sonography for probably five or six years now, and the last few years have been in fertility. Um, I have a two-year-old boy, soon to be three, and I also have one on the way, so life is busy for me right now, but yeah, things are going well. So could you tell us, okay, let's go through the history of your sonography experience. So, you know, what what roles have you played? What different things have you done? What current role are you in? Can you give us a little bit of background about that? Yeah, so I graduated from my sonography program in 2016 and soon started a position working in just like a general outpatient setting. So scanning everything, scanning abdomens, thyroids, vascular, OBGYN, um, all of that. And then I was only there for like six months, just wasn't my cup of tea. Um, OBGYN is my favorite. So I left and started working at a crisis pregnancy center where I was seeing typically young girls who became pregnant, didn't know what they were doing, didn't know how they wanted to proceed with their pregnancies. Most didn't know how far along they were. So we would do ultrasounds on them, see if it was a viable pregnancy, see how far along they were um, and kind of what their options were. I worked there probably about a year and a half, um, became pregnant with my son. This was in Indiana and I had a house in Lansing. So um, I left that position um, soon before I gave birth to my son and started working in fertility. And that's where I currently am now. So when you say crisis, I guess what type, you kind of described, you know, maybe younger women that are coming in. When you say viable pregnancy, you know, let's go through those two terms. What determines something to be crisis? And then what means viable pregnancy? Yeah, so for these girls, crisis usually meant, are they at a stage in their life where they can um, provide for a pregnancy, provide for a child? Um, A lot of them weren't or weren't planning on becoming pregnant, didn't want to be pregnant. Um, So we had a lot of resources for them as far as like parenting classes. Um, They could get rewards going to parenting classes, learning how to take care of a baby. They could use those rewards um, to get brand new baby stuff. Um, We had tons of community resources, um, just a lot of stuff for them if they wanted to continue their pregnancy like they knew they weren't alone knew they had options um we also saw like older women who became pregnant weren't planning on being pregnant again um that sort of thing just mostly people who didn't want to be pregnant um and then viability um was their pregnancy in the uterus did it have a heartbeat um did it have any abnormalities that would you know, make it incompatible with life. Um, I did scan some that weren't. So there's there's always that. That's always something that comes up. How do you handle that as a sonographer being in the room? Because I know 
you know, I've had two kids and there's not a lot of information the sonographer can say. So I feel like you guys have to have really good poker faces. And I know that there's reason for that. But I think what we don't know as women is how does a sonographer feel on the other side that has to just, you know, have this poker face and just kind of smile, still be engaging, still be professional. Yeah, so in school they teach you, you need to have a poker face. Um, (laughs) That's just part of our profession. Um, We know what we're scanning. We know the pathology. Um, We take boards that test us on this stuff, but we we're not an MD, we're not a doctor, we can't give the patient results, but we give the radiologist our findings. Um, So it's not like we're unaware of what is going on and you, you just have to kind of like separate yourself from it. I I don't want to be callous about it, but um, I mean, there's really, there's really like, I mean, nothing we can do for the patient in that sense of like telling them what's going on. I mean, women, they they do know in a sense, like, you know, something's not right. Like she's not showing me the screen. She's not talking as much as she was. And they seem to get that hint. Um, So we don't always really need to say anything. They, They almost always know. Now, if a patient were to ask you directly, like, hey, notice a change in your behavior, is there a heartbeat or, you know, and we're to call you out in a sense, what's the typical response? So, yeah. So I have a, a, like a little bit more leeway with my job where I'm at. Um, and I can say like, you know, just um, not seeing quite what I would expect to see. Um, I'm going to go get the doctor and I'm going to scan for the doctor. And then I will go get the physician and scan with them. And then the physician can tell them like while I'm scanning what I'm seeing. Um, so I have a little bit of wiggle room with that, but yeah. Not now, done. And going back to, you know, you said at the crisis center, you know, some women did not want to be pregnant. Some proceeded with pregnancy for the ones that didn't. Would you have a role with them any further or would that be the doctor? that would kind of take things over after that like let's say it's like yeah viable pregnancy but this you know patient this you know person does not want to keep it do you have any additional role with them or is that kind of referred out to the md so our radiologist was off-site like i would send my images um, leave notes for the radiologist this is what i think i saw but they never met with a doctor like personally and I wouldn't tell them what I saw. I would just tell them hey this is what you're measuring um this is like how far along you are that was what I could do that was the only thing I could say basically um and then we always preach prenatal care like you you're this far along you need to get in with the doctor do you need help with insurance we were really close with um Medicaid um in that case it was Indiana Um, setting up Medicaid for these patients, getting them enrolled. We would have representatives from Medicaid come to the office, um, like I think it was like once a week, and meet with these people to get them enrolled so that they could start prenatal care. We were huge on that. Um, So just always preaching to them, hey, you need to see a doctor. Hey, you're this far along. You need to start prenatal care. Um, But as far as like telling them what I saw um, outside of their gestational age, I just wasn't able to, Um, so yeah. I was kind of limited in that. So if they wanted an abortion, though, you wouldn't have any 
follow-up care from your role, correct? Correct. So okay. um, I could tell them how far along they were and uh, according to the laws, like what procedure they would encounter. But as far as that, they would they would have to go out on their own to figure that out. Okay. So transitioning, now you're in infertility, mm-hmm. which I know that you've really enjoyed. It, you know, I've interviewed different moms, um, and we've talked about infertility a little bit, and there's going to be more people I interview that talk more openly about this. But let's say somebody is having difficulty getting pregnant. Kind of walk us through what that process looks like from your perspective. Like, what is your role with them? You know, at what point are you getting involved? What is the average number of months somebody has been trying before they might come to an infertility center? Could you give us kind of like what the process would be like? And I know you can only speak to your perspective, not from like the MD's perspective or anything, but what would that look like for somebody having a difficult time? Right. So there is so much that goes into fertility. I think the general public really has no idea what's all that is involved. Um, I'd say probably about a year people come back like trying after a year they come see us um it depends on their age like if you know if they're advanced maternal age it might come a little bit sooner um but they come to us they have consult we run labs you know kind of see what their blood work's doing what their cycle day three labs are so those are labs we draw on cycle day two three or four seeing what their estrogen is their follicle stimulating hormones or luteinizing hormones all of that just kind of getting a baseline on where their fertility health is. Um, We do an ultrasound of the uterus and ovaries. We see like what their follicle count is, kind of what we're working with, Um, seeing if they have any uterine abnormalities, any polyps, fibroids, anything like that, anything that's gonna inhibit them from getting pregnant or is gonna make it harder to get pregnant. And then um, the doctor will do a hysteroscopy and a sonohistogram, so she, putting a camera through the cervix, checking the cavity, seeing if there's anything um, in the cavity that would that would restrict a pregnancy, um, checking the tubes. We um, watch on ultrasound. Um, we can see fluid dumping through the tubes, um, kind of making sure everything is okay, and then they can start a cycle. So some people start with just like a simple Femara or Clomid cycle where they're just doing like oral medications, and then we're coming back around ovulation time, getting an ultrasound, checking their follicles, seeing how many they are, if they're mature, um, and then they would do like a trigger shot, we call it, an avidrol shot, where we're triggering their ovulation. Um, so we're knowing that they're ovulating, and then they could either do like timed intercourse, or they could come and have an IUI, or intrauterine insemination. Um, and then usually if that doesn't work within a few cycles we'll start them on a little bit more aggressive course where we're doing the femara with an injectable medication kind of boosting follicle health follicle growth um, coming back again checking follicles we always check follicles before we ovulate because you know we want to make sure they're not having four or five mature follicles and then they're going to have quads type of thing Um, and then their next step might be like IVF after that, which is a whole different ball game. Um, that's a pretty in-depth process, but yeah, it's it's a lot. I was gonna say, so yeah, can we break it down part by part? So first, you know, a patient has maybe tried for a year or maybe you said um, advanced maternal age. So I, 
So for people that aren't familiar with the different terminology, what age would that be where they might be seen sooner versus, you know, have been trying for a year? So we typically say advanced maternal age would be like 35 or older, okay. um, which we do see quite a bit of women older like that. Um, maybe they've started their careers. They've wanted to build up their, you know, build up their career and having a family was kind of on the back burner. Um, that happens. Or we just see young couples like mid 20s, 30 that want to start a family and it just hasn't happened for them. And so you said first would be blood work. So, you know, that that sounds pretty simple, right? Just a simple blood draw to look at all the different levels. So it sounded like different hormone levels. So if there is something with the hormone levels, what would happen at that point? Like, let's say right from the onset, hormone levels are not where, you know, somebody would want them to be. What would be the intervention there? So like the doctor reviews everything, we send the lab results to the doctor and then it would be up to them. It, it'd be kind of, um, it might change their course as far as what treatment they're gonna start with. Like some women, um, they might just start with IVF if they know that their egg quality is bad, if they know that they don't have a lot of eggs and they're older and they don't wanna you know, wait around and see if these other type of treatment cycles are gonna work, they might just jump to IVF. So it all depends. Okay, so let's say hormones are good, right? Mm -hmm. Like tested good, what would be the next step? Then we would bring them in for ultrasound and hysteroscopy with some histogram. Okay, and you said that's where the camera will go up the mm -hmm. cervix and look at everything. So you're checking. Um, I just know from you talking to me personally, looking how the lining's going, yeah. you know, how everything's looking in there. When you say follicles, what, because this is all new to me too. I've only learned this from you, but I think as a general person, I'd be like, what does all this mean? So what does the follicle do? And you had mentioned like checking for cysts and fibroids. I think many people know about cysts, but what are fibroids? So one, what is the role of a follicle? And two, what are the fibroids? Like how would a fibroid impact things? Could you break that down for me? Yeah, so your follicles are on your ovaries. It's basically your egg supply. So every month, one of your follicles grows, or we hope it does, um, grows and ovulates and releases an egg where your tube picks it up and it hopes to be met with the sperm. Um, those are your follicles. So, you know, if, you're, if your follicle supply is low, you might not have a lot of eggs, um, which usually happens as you get older, your egg supply diminishes. Um, we call that decreased ovarian reserve. Um, and fibroids, they're tumors in the uterus. Um, they can be in different parts of your uterus. You can have it where it's submucosal, it's sitting right by the cavity, impinging on the cavity, those are the those are the ones we really don't like to see. Those can inhibit um, the growth of a pregnancy. And a lot of times if we find something like that, um, we'll do a myomectomy, or the doctor will do a myomectomy, um, remove that, make it so the cavity's nice for a baby. Um, or they could be like on the outside, which really isn't a huge deal for us. We just wanna make sure that nothing's gonna impinge on the cavity where it's gonna restrict um, the growth of, of a baby. Okay, so if everything's good there, you know, uterus looks good, follicles look good. You had mentioned like taking medications. Now I'm familiar with Clomid mm -hmm. and that could, you know, that helps follicles release, correct? So helps growth, yeah. Um, okay. 
if, if they come, they've been doing Clomid and they have mature follicles, we would then trigger their follicles. Um, so we use Avadrel typically. It's a trigger shot. Um, it causes the eggs to release. So that way we know when they're releasing. Um, so like if we're doing IUI, we can time it so that we're doing IUI at the perfect time according to when we triggered their follicles so they have the best chance of getting pregnant. And then my next question, what is IUI? IUI, so intrauterine insemination. So our nurses do these. Um, so the, the male will come leave a sample, a semen sample. The lab will wash the sample. They're, they're getting the best semen, um, the best swimmers out of this sample. And then we are inserting it into the uterus. So we're, we're putting a catheter through the cervix and putting that the best sample that we have up into the uterus so the, the patient has the best chance of getting pregnant. And then for your role, so let's say somebody does that, what's your role then from there? So sometimes we will scan for the nurses doing the IUI, um, doing ultrasound guidance for them so they can make sure the catheter is going into the right place. Um, and then after that, they would have a progesterone level drawn about a week after their Avadrol. We wanna check the progesterone. Typically our body secretes it um, from our corpus luteum. Um, and it helps support an early pregnancy, but some women just don't secrete enough progesterone. We like to see it at a certain number. So if perchance they get it drawn a week after they trigger, it's not high. As high as we would like to see, we'll, we'll supplement them on progesterone until either they have a negative pregnancy test or they're at 10 weeks of pregnancy. Um, and then a week after that, they would come for blood draw to get their beta HCG drawn, their pregnancy test. And if they are pregnant, what mm -hmm. happens? What's the rest of the process? So then we would check their betas. Um, we like to see it double every other day. So we'll do a few betas on them, make sure it's rising appropriately. And then they come for an ultrasound. Usually we do it about mid five weeks, about five weeks, three days to about six weeks, making sure just the sacs in the uterus. And then they come again a week or two later, making sure there's a heartbeat. And then they typically get graduated to their OBGYN. Okay. So for somebody not familiar, when you say beta, what's a beta? It's the beta HCG. It's the hormone, um, the pregnancy hormone that's in your blood when you become pregnant. And ideally you said that should double every two days. Yeah. We like okay. to see it double every 48 hours. So we'll draw it on like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday and hope it doubles every time we draw it. All right. Now, what about somebody that's done this and it's just still not pregnant? They've done the medication. They did the, you know, you said the trigger shot and, you know, still just not getting that positive test. HCG levels are not doubling. What would be the next process for that person? So it depends on what cycles they've been doing. If they've been doing like a few hybrid cycles, um, and it's just not happening, then they um, would probably meet with the doctor. Like our doctors will review their beta results. If they see it's negative and it's been negative, they'll say, hey, they need to meet with me. Um, we need to go over next steps, kind of see what's been happening, um, look into the reasons why they might not be coming pregnant and see about like how to move forward. And usually um, they'll suggest IVF at that point. Can you speak to what are common reasons that you've noticed people aren't getting pregnant? So, you know, sometimes 
like they might have um, like some sort of health problem or some sort of like immune response um, but everybody's different it's hard to say for sure like when we We'll check for like recurrent pregnancy loss labs. Um, if someone keeps having miscarriages for some reason, they're not like, you know, carrying a pregnancy, like it's not staying. Um, the doctor will recommend recurrent pregnancy loss labs, which checks a ton of stuff. A, a lot I'm not familiar with. I don't review those a ton with the doctor, um, but I know like a lot of blood clotting disorders are involved in that. That can be a factor. Um, some people go on Lovenox as a blood thinner. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that plays into it that that kind of stuff I'm not as familiar with. And then I heard you say IVF. Now I've heard of IVF and I guess I thought IVF was IUI. What's the difference between IUI and IVF? So IUI is just that intrauterine insemination we do with either like a Femara or a hybrid cycle. IVF is a different type of cycle so we stimulate egg growth they'll do a few medications injectable ones um, ones to keep them from ovulating and we pretty much stimulate all their eggs as hopefully as much as we can kind of depends on how many they have we don't want to stimulate them too much and get ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome Um, but we like a good number of eggs and then they'll go in and surgically retrieve those eggs and then um, they'll create embryos from them and then they would have a um, embryo transfer where they're getting like a catheter through the cervix again and then they're implanting that embryo into the uterus. And so ideally for people, um, it would be their egg and their partner's sperm. Yes, ideally. Okay, ideally. Okay. And then... um, do you know, and this might be outside your scope, so I apologize. Do you know what that process is like? Is the patient being put under? Are they awake? What is that so procedure like? For the retrieval, they are they're they're put under in a sense that we like they put in an IV. They're getting a medication. They're going to sleep. They're not getting like a tube down their throat or anything. They're not being intubated, um, but they're going to sleep, and um, then they use ultrasound with a little needle on the end of it and then they'll retrieve the eggs like through the vaginal wall with the needle to get to the ovaries okay all right and then ideally they become pregnant from that Mm -hmm. process and then what is the the rest of their follow-up care with you if everything goes smoothly so if they get pregnant and their betas are rising appropriately they'll do the same as everybody else they'll have a couple ultrasounds make sure the pregnancy is in the uterus make sure there is a heartbeat, and then we graduate them to their OB. Okay, so your role is kind of short-term in regards to, you know, the pregnancy process, but can be long-term with patients in regards to the infertility process. Yeah, Would that be as far fair? as like monitoring their follicle scope, yeah, we see some people for quite a while, yeah. And unfortunately, I know this is a real thing, if IVF is not working, you know, what would be the next step? So it depends on like how many eggs they've retrieved from their IVF cycle. If they've got quite a few embryos that have been made from their cycle, they've got a few chances at FET. So if their first FET didn't work, they could do another. If their second one didn't work and they had another one, they could do another. Um, If the first couple ones aren't working, a lot of times our doctor will add in 
other meds, do other protocols to see um, if they respond to something different. Um, so it all depends. That's kind of more the doctor side of it, like kind of their decision on as far as what's working, what's not, and what they can do um, differently the next time. Um, so it all depends. Some people just kind of like, yeah, it's not working. It is what it is, but yeah. Okay. I appreciate all that information and I learned so much today that I didn't even know. So I really thank you for that. So we're going to shift gears because you are a mother of one and expecting. Yes. Um, this is a postpartum, you know, podcast, also mm-hmm. perinatal. Have you had any complications with your pregnancies or postpartum that you would be comfortable sharing? Um, nothing too aggressive. I get sick. Um, I haven't been diagnosed with hyperemesis, but it's like borderline. Um, I'm sick for my entire pregnancies, uh, nausea and vomiting up until delivery. So that's fun. Um, I'm on a couple different medications. I'm on Zofran and Phenergan, um, and they work to an extent. I can go to work. Uh, I still throw up like three or four days out of the week um, and have bad days where I'm nauseous all day. But not as bad as it was in the first trimester, but it definitely is still with me, and I know it will be until I deliver. I was going to say, you're so sweet, because you say nothing too aggressive, and then I'm thinking, you're vomiting your entire pregnancy, and you're nauseous more of the time than you're not, so thank you for, you know, being modest there, but I think for many women, that would be overwhelming and defeating and kind of like, why did I do this? Have you struggled with any of that? Or are you able to take it in stride? Uh, well, when I became pregnant with this one, I knew it was going to happen again. I just, people would tell me like, oh, maybe the second one won't be like that. No, I, I know it will be. It, so I was kind of mentally preparing myself for being sick for nine months again. Um, but I just think about some women that puke like 20 times a day. And I'm like, yeah, you know, my three or four times a day isn't that bad compared to what it could be. Um, and some women get like a Zofran pump placed and get like constant feeds of Zofran. I just take it a couple times a day. Um, so it could be worse. <laughs> Definitely could be, could but be. still could be kind of terrible to be nauseous. Like. If you don't mind me telling our listeners, this is our third attempt at recording because of you not feeling well, right? And I'm not saying that in a rude way or dismissive way. Like, you truthfully, this is the reality of your pregnancy. There were two days where we had set up a time and you're like, I just don't feel good. And so, you know, it's still pretty significant in my opinion because you're how many weeks long now? I'm almost 19. I'm eight and five today. Yeah. Nope, so six. <laughs> yeah. So almost 19 weeks. Six. Yep. Almost 19 weeks. And so for me, I think that speaks volumes to the, you know, level of how uncomfortable pregnancy can be. And, um, and I, I thank you for being here today. Cause I was like, okay, if you feel sick, you know, eat your crackers, but if you feel sick, you don't have to do that. And I can, I can understand how some moms would be like, oh, this is so unpredictable. And I thought pregnancy was going to be the easy part and it's not. Um, I want to be mindful of your time here. So 
one more well not one more question you know that's a lie you know me too well but another question mm-hmm. any postpartum anxiety or depression for you so I you know me well to know that I never go to my physician with anything <laughs> never um, you guys never. for the record never and she's a medical professional but anyways I'll let you tell your own story um yeah so I don't I don't think it was depression it wasn't like I had this sense of doom or I felt like I was a terrible mom but I I did have like this sense of rage like I was so mad about everything I was mad at my husband for not knowing what I needed I was mad at my birth experience at how things went um there was like a month of like just I don't know something was wrong and I should have sought care in hindsight like I probably could have been put on medication or sought therapy, but I didn't. Um, I should have, and I probably will this time if the same thing happens. But I was crying multiple times a day. I was just mad at the world, basically. And I was going to say, in my book, I talk about the Edinburgh and how women basically might assume like, hey, if I, you know, if there were no concerns on my Edinburgh, I'm good. And I talk about how the Edinburgh is just a tool, okay? It is not an all, you know, end all be all for diagnosis and to be aware of like how you're truly feeling because rage is not on the Edinburgh, but if you talk to many moms, that is one of their biggest symptoms is feelings of rage. And so you are not the first person by any means to say the rage is what I notice first. Um, so just kind of to slide in there and say just because you might have you know a good quote-unquote Edinburgh does not mean you're you know off limits for continuing to monitor yourself and to see how your symptoms are going um okay I ask all my guests three questions Mm -hmm. so I am going to ask you the same first question and it can be at any point of the postpartum period and just being a mom in general what has been most supportive to you, whether it's from family, friends, work, anything? What has been most supportive? Um, honestly, I didn't really like pursue any type of support when I was going through that. Um, didn't really mention it to anybody. Um, but I started exercising regularly, like made sure I was doing like 45 minutes a few times a week. And that really helped. Um, kind of something to put my mind to and take my mind off of what was going on and I don't know if it was like the endorphins released or what but that helped um I don't do it anymore you know I'm busy and I'm sick and um but during that time yeah yeah I went to exercise that was that was my my support that's what helped me what do you do today to continue to take care of yourself as a mom Uh, I like to set aside time to myself to read. I love to read. Um, so after my son goes to bed, I stay up and I read, um, or I'll get up early in the morning with a cup of coffee. Well, a small cup now and read. Um, that's, that's my thing. I mean, I was studying for the NCLEX for a while there, which kind of put a damper on that, but I just loaded a bunch to my Kindle Unlimited. So (laughs) I'm back at it. Okay, now this isn't my third question, but I still have to ask because I don't think our listeners might understand when you say you like to read. 
Tammy, could you please inform us of how many books you've probably read this year? So I lost count after like 70, um, (laughs) but it's probably upwards of 90 now. (laughs) On top of finishing school, right? And studying for your, you you know, your boards. nursing school and studying for my boards. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I just needed to kind of give that awareness. I have a hard time like cutting it off and I will stay up all night to finish a book it's bad but okay I just you know <laughs> needed to give an idea it, you know, right it could be drugs or alcohol right it it could be it could be um and I talk about in my book about being very descriptive about what you, you know giving numbers to things so your audience or your doctor really knows what you mean so I had to give the audience like a number there because I've yeah. maybe read two so <laughs> okay last question what advice do you have for a listener? So maybe it's a new mom, maybe it's somebody who's pregnant, maybe it's somebody who's discouraged because they are having trouble getting pregnant. What advice would you have to them? I think like for the postpartum aspect, um, like if something doesn't feel right, go to your doctor, like seek care, seek support. Cause I didn't, and I probably should have, um, I think things would have been better if I did. Um, that would be my advice. Listen to yourself. Listen to your body. All right, Cami. I am so thankful for your time. Um, if you are a listener, if you have any questions or if you need resources, please email postpartumtherapist at gmail.com. Please take a look at our other episodes. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.